Welcome to episode five of Great Quarter Guy. This is the show about the intersection of transportation, finance, and investing. I'm Seth Holm. I'm your host. I'm here with my two co-hosts as usual, Kevin Hill and Andrew Cox. How are you guys? We're doing great today. Yeah, it's a good day. Cool. Well, we've got a great show for you guys, as always. Uh, first in store, we're going to be doing our business model breakdown series. Two episodes ago, we did Old Dominion. Today, we're going to do the story of Dasky, which is North America's leading flatbed operator. So let's just get right into it. Um, Kevin Hill spent five years as a, a broker in flatbed, so he knows this market cold. So we're going to start off with Kevin here. So Kevin, um, what? let's do an, a macro overview of the flatbed market. Um, first of all, what's the difference between flatbed and specialized? And then how big is this market? What is Dasky's share and how does it differ from driving? Yeah, so I, I, I did broker freight for about five years, mostly flatbed, mostly in and out of Mexico, in and out of Canada. So I, I do have a lot of experience in, in, in flatbed trucking. Uh, so for, for, the first, for the first answer, it'd be, I, I think I read in Stiefel an investment note uh, this week. It's about $130 billion dollar. Yeah. Uh, industry, and I think that, that that combines both flatbed and specialized, just really anything that's open deck. So you have flatbeds, which are exactly what they, they, uh, they're they named, right? Just right. A, a 48 feet or 53 feet now, uh, just a, a straight flatbed uh, trailer. And then you have step decks, and that's for uh, items that or commodities that are a little bit taller than the 886. Uh, legal requirements, and then you have double drops for for items that are a little bit taller than that, and then you have uh, specialty trailers, really specialty trailers, right? The step decks and, and double drops, RGNs or special specialized equipment, and that's how it's broken down in the the Dasky report uh, as well. Then you have stretch, you have you know extra axles, things that that can carry up to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Uh, all the way up to to five hundred thousand pounds. We were talking a few minutes ago about the long wind turbines, and those are the one of the some of the the most specialized trailers that that, that you can find. So that's kind of a breakdown between you have flatbed, which is uh, maybe steel coils, pipes, basically legal loads as they call them, and then specialized is anything that you need with permits or specialized trailers uh, to to run legal with. Cool. That's a great start. Um, and so Dasky's business, uh, basically there's two segments, two thirds of the business is specialized and about a third is flatbed. Um, so the next thing we're going to do is we're going to kind of tell the Dasky story. So Dasky was, uh, founded by eponymously by Don Dasky, uh, in 2008 and Don made his career in uh, sort of commercial real estate. So he was a CEO of a successful REIT and he made his money there. And he happened to just serendipitously get a call from an investment banker friend in 2008 who asked him to take a look at this specialized trucking carrier out in Washington State. And that originally, it gave him the original vision to basically, uh, this is a highly fragmented market. Uh, you get paid more per mile. And he set out to roll up this industry. And so um, this company was founded in 2008. They've made, I think, 13 acquisitions. Is that right? It's a, So it's a an amalgamation of 13 operating companies they uh they didn't actually ipo they went public via a special purpose acquisition company in 2015 all right so kevin 
that takes us to the SPAC. Now, where do things stand today with Dasky? So, so basically today, um, Don Dasky retired uh, a few months ago. Uh, they just uh, announced, basically, they're, they're changing their strategy uh, from M&A rolling up to, to focusing on integrating those, those 12 or 13 companies that, that they've acquired over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so basically, it's it's been tough for for flatbed uh, operators over the last uh, certainly twelve months, uh, but there's been a couple cycles in there as well. Um, so, so basically, what you have uh, whenever you're trying to roll up any industry, even though it's it's an industry, uh, but it's still very sizable. Where you have a, it's very fragmented, as you as you said. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, flatbed carriers who run over a hundred trucks are only about you know, 350 to, to 400 carriers out there mm-hmm. right now that or that that size and scope and a handful that run over a thousand. Right. So with that, um, you know, the, there's there's some risks to the roll up strategies. And um, the, there's three major ones, really. Um, number one, a bad economic environment mm-hmm. for flatbed. And we see that with the ISO manufacturing index right now under 50 uh, with a you know a couple other th- WTI oil oil's been struggling and those are very flatbed intensive uh, businesses so you have a bad economic climate uh, number two is like with any roll up strategy you overpay so sometimes you overpay there's always that risk of overpayment um, so we the- saw that in the third quarter uh, they they had about a three hundred million dollar write down of prior acquisition yeah, yeah. non cash. Not non cash, so that they run. They had uh, what two hundred and seventy million dollar loss. Right, so they but, actually but, made money. But they also, yeah, on cash flow basis, they made money, but they had a, a, a huge write down on impairment of goodwill. So those assets, uh, as they value them on on their books, are, are less than what they paid for them uh, a few years ago. And then third, you have integration. So they Dasky uh, decided to go with a soft integration approach. Uh, to where these the, the brands like Tennessee Steel Haulers, Boyd Brothers, uh, and, and a few others up in the Pacific Northwest retain their brands, retain basically operating independently, almost like uh, like Dasky's a holding company for flatbed and specialized operators or carriers. Kevin, can you talk a little, a little bit more about the uh, the connection between oil prices and the flatbed market? Because we, we've talked about how... Uh, that a low a low WTI price can also uh, kind of detract drivers that would drive on the oil fields. It kind of brings them into the flatbed market and kind of gives a little bit of extra capacity, which can drive down rates. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that is the case. So so I was uh, I was working for a shipper slash broker back in uh, when 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 it was uh, it was late 2015. Whenever oil went from high 90s, high 80s, I think it touched 100. In 2015, and it crashed over a matter of a quarter. So, what we saw is that a lot of those oil field workers who were working the oil fields or driving trucks in the oil fields, a lot of guys, uh, specifically a lot of guys out in West Texas, Western Oklahoma, who were driving pneumatic trailers. So, pneumatic trailers are like dry bulk tankers. They're very expensive, about one hundred forty thousand dollars for for a new one, and it's that drilling. F- fluid or, or, or frac sand that you take out to the, the oil fields and you have that pneumatic tube and it 
shoots it out and it's very highly specialized but once the oil price crashed in in early 2016 mid 2016 you saw all those guys either selling pneumatic trailers or parking them and going out and getting flatbeds so we did a lot of flatbed loads around our, our mining operations uh gypsum and, and limestone and what you saw was just a flood of guys from the, the oil fields coming in wanting with with flatbeds wanting to to move loads and it just crashed it crashed the market we're getting calls from from small flatbed carriers uh daily hourly looking to move loads so that's one of those dynamics where where the the price of oil has a direct correlation to flatbed pricing cool so um let's talk about let's dive in a little bit deeper so the the stock used to be about a 15 dollar stock i think it's about three dollars today They've uh, they brought in new management uh, temporarily. Chris Easter is in, and there was a great article on FreightWaves.com about how uh, Chris Easter is taking Dasky on a transformational journey. Basically, they were doing a lot of deals over the prior ten years, and now they've levered up, and now they're going to focus on not doing deals, integrating them, and improving cash flow and paying down debt on the balance sheet. So, Kevin, the, why don't we dive in, um, and Andrew too? Why don't we dive into you know, why do, guys, why do we think that the roll up story hasn't worked out so far? So, and what I mean by that, is it, is it one bad deal? Is it a string of bad deals? Is it overpaying for assets? Is it being in the wrong end market or is it some combination of all of the above? I would lean to a combination of all of the above, right? I don't think that they, they did it. I don't think they did a string of bad deals. There's probably one bad deal in there. There usually is if you do enough deals, right? You're going to sure. get one wrong. I think the soft integration is, I, I think the economic activity, um, you know, oil and industrials was bad timing. Uh, so that contributed to it. And then the soft integration, you either do a full integration or a soft integration. And both strategies have their pluses and minuses. But I, I think the soft integration, um, it, it didn't go well. Yeah. And so why don't we go ahead and get into that? That was another question. So why don't we talk about what the difference between a soft integration and a hard integration and what are the trade-offs and the, and the cost benefit of that? So, um, so, so basically the, the difference is that the, if you, if you buy Boyd brothers, the Boyd brothers name goes away after a certain point and you have one centralized, you know, accounting department, of course you have, uh, scale whenever you're buying trucks, mm-hmm. buying service agreements, right? So you have you have that cost scale um, so that you can do, and I, I think they're doing, uh, or they have been doing, or, or trying to do. Yeah. Um, but then you have the revenue revenue side of the soft integration. Uh, you know, sometimes if you have two different sales forces spread over the country, you might be bidding on the same contracts against yourself. Uh, you might be going into the same client with three different brands and three different sales teams mm-hmm. uh, saying how we, we can cover your network because we're associated or sister companies or X, Y, and Z, and that they might show up two hours later to, to meet with the same customer. So wow. it, it, it gives uh, off a little bit of, of chaos within the organization. And um, it's not as clean and as 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 optimal probably as a hard integration where you have one sales team selling uh, one marketing team as well, selling services for a a really entire fleet of, of trucks with one strategic purpose. 
Right. And so now they're going to go with the hard integration. Okay. So they've been focused originally, they were basically focused on revenue growth and now they've laid out this $30 million synergy target. And so just to put that in context, I believe they've guided 2019 at 170 million in EBITDA. Mm -hmm. So this is a big target here. And two thirds of that is going to come from operational integration. So do you think, you know, the, this builds on the question, Kevin, what do you guys think it'll will, will it take for Dasky to succeed from here? I mean, do they need to sell assets? Uh, and if they do, who are the natural buyers? You know, I, I don't know if they need to sell assets. So it's, it's you know, whenever you're highly leveraged, it, it becomes a, a an option that's at the head of the line a lot of times, right? I mean, it's an easy thing to do to, to sell assets. Uh, you know, it's a niche, and riches are where the niches are. Um, but you, you have only a handful of, of players out there really that can buy a significant portion of assets mm-hmm. uh, that they probably do need to, 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 to sell or, or think about selling. You know, part of your strategic review for restructuring is always, you know, how to, to shed assets. And they, they, talked, they didn't really talk about shedding assets in, in the investor or the earnings call. Um, but, but, also, but they did, you know, that they did mention underperforming sectors of the business and concentrating on that so uh, of course anything that underperforms is, is you know on the trading block as they say i think there's one point to be made also about uh, the not quite ineffectiveness but the the problems with rolling up a uh, a flatbed company is that the inherent difficulty in building strong networks of of uh, of flatbed companies you have such specialized things and and drop sites and and pickup sites that are that are quite different from each other, especially from different cities to different counties and states. So I think there's an inherent difficulty of building a strong network uh, of a flatbed company. And that, that's also probably played into the fact that this roll-up strategy hasn't worked as they'd liked it would. Yeah, that's true. And and basically, they're, they're running almost a Berkshire Hathaway model in trucking. So one thing that Don Dasky did was he was really highly respected in the industry, uh, known as a guy uh, for high integrity. Uh, he liked to buy companies that, quote, weren't for sale. Um, and what it, so what he meant by that was basically he wanted to buy companies at a lower price than they could probably get elsewhere. But in exchange for that, he let them continue to stay on cash out, right. continue to stay on, manage the business and get equity and Dasky and buy into the whole thing. So, um, you know, moving forward, um, that will be, that will still be their model, um, as they go forward. But so and Andrew where, hit on a pretty good point on the distance density of network and and how difficult that is to build and that's that might be one of the reasons why that they they opted for a soft integration and keeping executives on to, to let them continue building out um the, their networks and the density and, and operating their business like they they always did before because it was so difficult to to link all of those uh moving parts together and and work like a berkshire hathaway type of of independent entities. Right. I think it plays on both those points that they were going for companies that weren't for sale. These companies had been around for, for I mean, almost 100 years. They have a couple of companies that were, that were started in the 30s and a couple in the 20s as well. So they had established brands, you know, and that's kind of a difficult mm-hmm. thing to just drop that brand and throw on a brand new brand that, that was uh, in, Dase- in, in Dasky in 2008. So, I mean, you had a lot of brands in play here that you don't want to uh, diminish and damage. So uh, I can see why they did a soft integration, but, you know, looking back 10 years later, you know, it hasn't gone as they'd liked. It's a risky, it's a risky bet to, to do a soft Certainly. integration. Yeah. It is, but so it's becoming a less risky story uh, moving forward 
in the sense that they're focused on integration and cost cutting, and they've brought in three new board members who are focused on operational improvements. So what do you guys think it takes for basically Dasky as a stock to be successful from here? I, I think, number one, it needs to uh, do really well just announcing restructuring. You know, mm-hmm. the, the stock has, has moved quite nicely over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I know, uh, so, so, so that, that's, that's number one, but, but follow through with the execution. I know it sounds right. simple, but, you know, just follow through with the execution. And it, there's some challenges to um, being able to, to do hard integration. And some of the pieces might not fit, and those might be uh, good pieces to sell to pay off debt. Um, but I think if they can do it, I, I really think it's it'll be a really nice, uh, really nice company, a really ni- really nice stock. Right. I mean, this uh, this Dasky brand is is a reputable one. They, um, you know, we, we talk to to flatbed carriers, and they say if if you want to sell your company, you look to sell to Dasky. You, you're waiting for that Dasky call. So it's a reputable brand, and I think people respect it. Um, and I don't know if they need to sell off assets, but I think they need to do a, a true operational. Uh, integration. They need to be able to buy assets in bulk, or uh, and they're able to get insurance in bulk, and they're able to get the things, get their cost structure down, uh, because right now their their costs are too high. And but they have free cash flow. They need they're they're highly levered, but they have a lot of free cash flow. And if if they can continue to pay down that debt and delever uh, over the next few quarters, I, I think they they stand a chance to really double or, or, or do well. Yeah. So a question for you, Seth. Yeah. Um, do you think? Um, and, and for you too, Andrew. Actually, um, do you think? Do you think? that these separate brands will be around in two years or it'll be just one Dasky brand or maybe three or four brands, but not 13 or 14? Well, I don't think all of them will go away because, again, I think that they've had some brands that have been around for nearly 100 years. I think they have some, uh, some of these companies need to stay branded as they are, uh, but almost on a, on a front of house basis be branded as, as they were, but on the back of house uh, be branded as a Dasky company. They have this operational and, and same uh, integration system. So, do you think a Dasky sales rep will walk in and 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 sell the entire portfolio to a customer, or do you think they'll, they'll be still be somewhat separated out like that? Seth, I I don't know. I mean, I think they have. Uh, I think Andrew makes a great point. I mean, we watched the video on the investor relations side. I mean, these, some of these companies have literally been around since the Great Depression. Um, so I think in the sense in their managements know exactly, they know their customers, uh, you know, integrate into uh, very intimately, excuse me. Um, and so I think that they will remain uh, separate going forward. And um, but there are there is a lot of low hanging fruit on the cost side. So mm-hmm. I do think in this hard integrations, they will take a look at whatever they can do to make that more efficient. Very good. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I, I think some of the brands will go away, but I think some of them will. And that's going to be a very difficult process for Dasky to go through. Definitely. It, you know, it's a large company. There's a lot of, as you said, you know, there, it's a 100-year-old 100, 100 brand so in some cases or 80-year-old. There's going to be some difficult conversations there, uh, there in the next few quarters for Dasky. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, one thing on the balance sheet is they have plenty of room. So, like, their covenants are four times. They're well below mm-hmm. that. They've actually got... Uh, we talked about they had impairments in the quarter. They're actually generating really quite good cash flow. So they've uh, year to date, I believe, through the first three quarters, they've generated almost a hundred million in cash flow mm-hmm. on a hundred and eighty million dollar market cap. So it's a huge free cash flow yield to the levered equity. And then you know they do have a lot of debt, but I do think that buys them some wiggle room and some time to be able to turn this company around. Yeah, I agree totally. I mean, we're we're talking about all the negative things, but that's that's one of the the biggest positives. And what we all like about the company, uh, 
unanimously, right, is that it's a free cash flow generator. So it's going to be very attractive for investors going forward, and um, and, and certainly if they can that they can get through the restructuring phase, there's especially, plenty of upside. Especially if we see uh, you know an uptick and a, and a pickup in our industrial section, uh, it's actual I mean, industrial be huge sector, for them, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and a trade deal would be enormous for them. Yeah. But we'll, yeah. you know, we'll and what, what stocks through. are always good in in cycles, especially at the bottom, right? Ones yeah. with lots of leverage and a depressed price. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of uh, Stiefel, who's positive on the name, they have a, and uh, Seaport, we read some of their reports. I think that it's a $2.80 stock at five times EBITDA. It's worth 5 or $6 on 2020 if they can make these improvements. So we'll see. There, There is some uh, integration risk here, but now it's going to be down to execution um, going forward. So it'll be an interesting to watch, one to watch. Um, okay, so let's move on to our next segment here. Um, Kevin, this week you wrote an article uh, that generated a lot of hits on FreightWaves.com about our freight broker compensation report. Why don't you tell everybody what you took a look at there? Yeah, so everyone wants to know how their pay ranks with their peers. I I think that's a universal uh, curiosity for us all, right? So, yeah, so uh, our group here, Andrew, took the lead in, in surveying, wait, how many surveys? Uh, 402 yeah, 400, freight brokers. Yeah. yeah, over 400 freight brokers uh, from all areas in the U.S. and Canada to find out what the average entry-level freight broker salary is. And once you get into maybe your, your mid-tier, your later tier, it's hard to define. But entry-level is very easy to find. And then the commission level right, is another thing that is very easy to, to benchmark off of. What we found, there's a pretty tight correlation or a pretty tight um, variance, right, between uh, any part of the country, any part of Canada. It's, it's about $40,000 to start, mm-hmm. which is uh, about the, the average price of, of any inside sales rep in, in most industries. So 40000 and we found that uh, the commission rates are 13.2%. Um, uh, you know, average across across that same area. So anywhere from say twelve to fifteen percent is is probably what is in line if you're a freight broker out there. And uh, so so basically, if you're generating you know a quarter million dollars uh, of gross margin a, a year, you're going to be making somewhere between seventy and seventy five thousand dollars, which kind of uh, goes through the the research that that Andrew did on Glassdoor and LinkedIn and kind of my picture window and, and talking to a lot of freight brokers and being a freight broker at one point. Right. So, um, so, so it kind of, it kind of fell within, within what we we're thinking. Uh, but yeah, it generates always generates a lot of buzz and something that we'll do every year going forward. Um, just to, uh, just, just to keep tabs on the industry. Yeah. It's going to be fun to see, uh, especially as we do this, uh, you know, quarter by quarter on a yearly basis, how, uh, salaries grow as this broker industry grows, right? Because this broke we this projected broker industry is uh, is expected to grow over the next few years. Uh, so it's gonna be fun to watch that. But Kevin, we also we also ask some other kind of fun questions like, um, yeah. uh, what what is most important when you're recruiting and looking at new brokers, and and what was uh, what was the most important and what was the least important thing that we found? Well, the most important thing is tenacity, hustle, and persistence. And something, coming from something you have, Mr. Kevin, uh, well, it, you you gotta you gotta learn it or have it to to be a freight broker. Because everything is going to go wrong, you're going to get the short end of the stick uh, almost every instance that that it can be. You're going to get the the raw end of, of the deal, and uh, selling freight services is highly competitive, highly commoditized, and it's it's basically a cult of personality. 
Um, on the what ranked dead last is is one that always brings a smile to my face. <laughs> Education. Education. Huh. And you know what? I, I wasn't a great freight broker, probably because I had too much education. <laughs> and I analyzed things instead of just doing it. But I did learn how to just do it, just like Nike says, right? Just do it. You know, don't even think about it. Because, you know, I can sit here and we, we can analyze and, and think about what to do and and come up with the, the wrong answer just as quickly as just doing it. Right. So, yeah. I, I find it kind of conflicting, though, because uh, at least here in Chattanooga and a lot of my friends have, have graduated from college and gone on to work at, at brokerages around town. Mm-hmm. Is that not only that, you know, the brokers say that the, the last thing they're looking for is education, yet. All of them require a four-year education, but so it's, just, it's super conflicting. It, it is, you know, but most of the, the, the best freight brokers I've ever known never went to college. Right. That's, that's right. true right. of all jobs, though, it is, in, yeah. in society. Well, right if, if you look at stock traders, right, stock traders traditionally weren't necessarily college graduates, right? They're guys on the floor. Not in the past, and no, now they want an Ivy League. Yeah, yeah exactly right, right. right? And, but, but what matters in stock trading is, is temperament and emotional uh, intelligence. Right. Um, that's, that's huge. And, and then that's something that, that ranked pretty high on the freight broker, right? It, yeah. Formal education doesn't really matter. Street smarts rank it's much high. higher than, than education, right? If you can do numbers in your head, you can figure out a rate per mile and put a margin on it while you're talking to somebody on the phone without even thinking about it, you don't need a you don't need Ivy League education. You don't even need a college education to do that. If you have that street smarts, then you're just acting and if you underquote or overquote it, you just figure it out. Right. And the and the gift of the gab, I think um, the gift of the gab, speaking yeah. speaking was sec number two in our uh in our mm-hmm. ranking there. It so, was. So Kevin, did you find any in, any differences or discrepancies between the answers you got in your surveys? And what you think personally? I, I didn't. I, 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 right in line with everything you Right think. in line, right? And we, we did a lot of stuff on where would you like to open up a, a an office if you could open up one anywhere in Chicago, Dallas. You know, you have these freight hubs, um, L.A., that are ranked at the, 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 the top. But the thing is, you don't have to be in those those areas to, to run a successful freight brokerage. There's a lot of successful freight brokerages that are in very rural areas in Iowa or Oklahoma because um, basically you don't need to, to look for education. Mm-hmm. There's just a nasty hustle and, and persistence and the cost of doing business right. in, in those states. If you take a state like Tennessee, like Chattanooga, where you don't have uh, state income tax, you have very low, I mean, I think it was one of the lowest uh, costs per square feet. Right, low property uh, uh, taxes. Low property taxes. And, you know, you have a university here, too, right? Mm-hmm. UTC, which is uh, a large, large state university. Yeah, sizable, yeah, yeah. Go Mox. Go, go Mox, yeah. Yeah, so if you do that instead of Chicago, you're going to save, uh, what was it? It's like between those two, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000 a year. A year. Yeah. On the bottom line, on on salaries for 50 brokers, enough office space to, to, to cram them in in an open space. Right, I think the ranking went uh, access to... Um, customers and access mm-hmm. to talent, and then third was uh, compensation savings. So it was like where you can uh, where you can pay the people uh, the least, unfortunately. But yeah, those yeah. were the three rankings, and and yeah, it was right in line with what I was thinking as well. I, uh, I think uh, Kevin here has rushed off a lot of his broker knowledge onto me that I can that I can get. So it, right in line with what we were thinking. Yep. Yeah. And one thing though that we're going to do next time, and I just thought of it. I don't know why we didn't think of it before. Is um, what was the average uh, freight broker? Uh, how much gross margin? Do they make, say, a month right, or like a year 
you know, then we can really piece together what, what the average freight broker, if it's 200, I, I think it's probably right around 250,000, but uh, why not? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to be around more than a year or two, you got to do at least 250. Right. And so what, what would an outstanding broker do, Kevin? An outstanding broker would do, I, I say anyone doing over 500,000 mm-hmm. is doing very well for themselves. And if we just run the numbers, we'll just say on 10%, that's about 50,000, 40,000. So you're making about 90,000. Mm-hmm. So you, you hit a, you know, you hit a hundred K, you know, a hundred K a month, and then you're, you're making a very, very nice living. Um, of course you can never, you know, go home at night or, you know, you can never sit down and, and have dinner or go to lunch without your phone just ringing off the hook constantly, um, putting out fires, but you can still make a nice living. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to the next segment here. We're going to talk a little DHL supply chain pricing power index. This is something we talk about on the show every week. We do this on Thursdays. We just put out the new link today on the website. Go check it out. Um, but today we bumped up the score again for the second week in a row. We so this has been kind of a wild ride over the last few weeks. Uh, we we got all the way up to what was it forty five. Uh, so just Initially. to reiterate, it was you know zero is all the all the way in favor of the shipper, hundreds all the way in favor of the carrier, and fifties a balanced market. We got all the way up to forty five a couple of weeks ago. We went all the way back down to fifteen, and now we're back up at thirty. So what drove this week's rating, guys? Why did we why did we step it up again? I think there's a few reasons. One is, you know, truly the, the carriers are clawing back. The holiday helps. Uh, you have a lot of drivers that get off the road, uh, which helps all the other drivers that aren't off the road. So you had rates. Uh, we, we've seen uh, on our DAT uh, rate index, we've seen it climb up above 150 for the first time in a while. Uh, and we've also seen, and while we have a, a seven-day moving average on both of our rejections, our outbound tender rejection index and our outbound uh, volume index. So the, the numbers can be skewed, but we, we saw the peak right before Thanksgiving go 3% higher than the peak last year. And we've also seen the trough, which, which should be today, the trough is again 3% shallower than the one last year. So there's a couple of reasons for this, and, and we're just going to have to watch and, and see which one is the most prominent. But one reason is that, yeah, we have one less week uh, before Thanksgiving, before Christmas this year. So you have these shippers that are rushing to get their, their goods on the, on the shelf. Uh, or the second thing could be that we just have a really happy and confident consumer. So we're in, we're in line for a pretty good, uh, holiday season coming up. What do you think, Kev? I think you're right. I think, uh, I'm very optimistic about the next three weeks. Uh, right before I came down, I was talking to one of our sales guys and, and he was asking me about the way you just went over, you know, because there's a, a one less week for between Thanksgiving and Christmas. What's that going to do to uh, tender rejections, tender volumes? And it should spike up as long as inventory levels aren't too high right now. Mm-hmm. So I've been hearing a little bit about, you know, the, the, the store refills don't really need that that extra expedited service. So uh, because of just because of inventory levels, not because of sales, but because they have excess inventory from all the the the, the trade wars and, and the, pull t- back, the pull through, yeah, the, right. the pull through, and and so that's that's still not quite um, where it typically is. But I I think we're, we're going to have to see next week and, and see what the market does post Thanksgiving holiday as we gear up. But I'm I'm optimistic about it. Yeah, and, and one other thing that uh, I don't think you guys mentioned was spot rates are ticking up a little bit here, right? We're we're sitting at what a dollar fifty five now, over over dollar mm-hmm. fifty, yeah. first time in a long time. Yeah, and they got all the way down to a dollar twenty five earlier in the spring, and mm-hmm. so now 
or what, 15 cents above operating cost per mile? They go right? pretty good. I know, right? Good stuff. I know. On the downsides, we have ISM that, that came out uh-huh. and it's still not painting a, a pretty, pretty picture. That's right. Yeah. So in the ec- we have an economics section. And so the ISM came out on Monday. And, um, and that's so manufacturing. That is the yeah. ISM, Institute of Supply Management Manufacturing uh, Purchasing Managers Index. So basically what they do is they survey a couple hundred uh, purchasing managers at all these factories around the country. And 50 is the line in the sand between expansion and contraction. And so just to put things in context, uh, this index uh, is is just, you know, it's looking for how fast is the manufacturing economy growing. And so this peaked out at a, a little bit above 60 in uh, mid-2018, kind of in the summer with the Trump bump. And now this has basically come down in a straight line. It just hit 48. Uh, and, and there's a couple bad news items here. And I talked about this on Freight Waves Now earlier this week. Basically, that uh, missed consensus. So consensus was looking for like 49 and a half. It ticked down from October. October was like 48 and a half and it's hitting new lows. So basically in a nutshell, what this means is the manufacturing economy is still in a mild recession. And so um, right now, basically what this is doing is this is throwing cold water on everyone was thinking, oh, the trade war is looking better. Uh, The global economic recovery, it's probably bottoming out and it's going to accelerate into 2020. And so one, one thing about this negative ISM reading what Andrew and I were calculating this morning, we calculate our freight waves, proprietary truckload, LTL, parcel, and logistics index. They all got hammered this week, didn't they? They sure did, yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the main reasons, I think it's twofold. I think it was the negative. So you've seen a little bit more uncertainty on the trade war front. So December 15th is the tariff deadline, and Trump's kind of been posturing. Who knows what's going to happen there? And then you get this negative ISM reading and I, th- I believe the ltl indexes were down seven percent this week yep yeah sure yep that's right um okay so moving on to our long short segment which is our final segment today um there's two questions at always so here's the first one we gave a pretty good lead in here so guys we'll start off with you andrew do you think the ism is greater than 50 by mid 2020 aka is the manufacturing and industrial economy in expansion or recession well, I would be long if I didn't have to uh, trust our administration to get a trade war done. So I, I don't think the trade war is going to ha- get done. Uh, and, and the reason for that is Trump is either going to have to secede a little bit to get a, a trade a trade deal done before re-election, and I think it would you know massively bolster his re-election campaign. But I think he's he's almost waited too late that he now has to shift full focus towards that re-election campaign. So I, I think he's going to drag this thing out. I think he'll focus more on re-election, meaning that I have to be uh, short the ISM being at, at above 50 by mid-2020. So you don't think that, that we get a trade deal by I do not. I don't think we get a trade trade deal before re-election because I think Trump's going to have to completely focus on the re-election campaign. And I also think because we don't have a trade deal, we don't see ISM bump up uh, into expansion mode by mid-2020. But so you don't think, don't you think that would help his re-election campaign if he got... Oh, if, if he, he got it done, it would be, yeah. it would majorly help his campaign. But I don't, I think that he's almost waited too long to get it done now that he now has to shift his focus away from a trade deal uh, towards to actually, to actually focusing on winning the re-election. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Kevin? I, I'll go short too. I, I'll go short too because everyone tells me, and I don't really believe them whatsoever but but though they tell me that the economy is always in a funk during an election year so i you know i don't really buy into that but i i think it might be true this time buying in 
I'm, I'm buying in because I, I think you you articulated better than I could ever. So I'll just uh, let Andrew do my talking. You know that, guys. That makes <laughs> me wonder, though. Are we going to be in an actual recession? Because we've had the yield, inverted yield curve, so the the P, uh, the ISM has been negative for four straight months. I think looking back historically, I don't know the exact statistics off the top of my head, but that would put us at you know close to a year straight of being negative uh, on the ISM. So that raises the question of, are we going to be in an actual recession, which would make Trump's re-election chances even harder? I, you know, I am, I, 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 I we're 10 years into recovery, 11 years, 12 years. It's got to come at some point. Yep. And so I would not bet against a recession whatsoever. Yep. Just like I would not never bet against the Oklahoma Sooners. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I would not had bet. To that in. I know, right? I had to. Yeah, I, I would not. I would not bet on bet against a recession next year. Yeah, and you know that makes Trump's reelection chances even harder because I think historically, I don't think any president has ever gotten reelected or initially, uh, yeah, elected during a recession. So that that'll make things tough on him. Okay, guys, I saved the best segment for last here. here uh, I know we've got some strong opinions. Starting with one Tim Dooner here. I believe he's already put in his pre-order. Um, but guys, are we long or short the Cybertruck? And I'll start with you again, Andrew. I'm long. I'm really long on the Cybertruck. And for a couple of reasons. One, we've had the same pickup uh, pickup truck designed for, uh, you know, 75, 100 years now. Why try to enter that market in a very competitive market with the F-150 and the Silverado and all of the name brand trucks that you can come up with? Why enter that market with the exact same truck that they have? come in with something vastly different. The My only problem is that it you can't really reach in the truck bed from the side. If they can figure that problem out, then you've negated uh, the, the issue of not being able to get in the truck bed uh, from ex other than from the back. So no, I'm really long. And I think if you're going to come in with an electric truck, you make it look futuristic. Uh, I think even if he may have done this on purpose, they've, there's been uh, news come out that he made it ugly on purpose. I don't think it's ugly. I think it's cool. And I think it's going to sell well, especially you're seeing a lot of like police uh, and government uh, putting in big purchases. I know the, the city of uh, Valles in, in Mexico just put down 15 nice. trucks. So, yeah, I, I right. I'm long it. So do you think this is a mass market truck? Or it's it's more of a niche with free social media marketing? Uh, well, I think if, well, you know, I think we spoke about this the other day, how uh, I don't remember the exact percentage, but a, a large minority at least of the pickup trucks that are bought in America are bought for commercial purposes. Correct. If they can win over some of these big fleets uh, with the power and with the cost savings long term, then yes, I think it's a mass market truck if they can get on the commercial side. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's huge. Um, you know, one thing people always focus on is, you know, is this really a middle America truck? I think you hit on the key point is, is this a commercial truck? Because if it is, it's going to take off like crazy. Now, I'm, I'm looking at Kevin here. He's skeptical. Kevin, what do you think? I, I, I am short the cyber truck. I, I just don't like it. You know, maybe it will sell, maybe it won't. I'm not going to make a, a judgment on that, but I just don't like the look of it. Um, I feel like, uh, it reminds me of black hot helicopters, right? Yeah. You know, like, like a police state type of thing. Like I need, you know, a laser blaster and a, a vest to, to drive it around like Han Solo or something. You know, I, I, I like, I like pickup trucks the way they are right now. Um, you know, I, you know, give me a 72 Chevy. I, I think a 72 Chevy is one of the sexiest trucks in the world. You know, I, you What's know, that song like a rock, like a rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, Bob Seger, Bob Seger. Yeah. A short wide 72 truck, you know, maybe a 68, but a 72, 72 Chevy. Very specific here. I, I, I really am. I, I grew up around 72. What year were you born? 
Uh, 74. Uh, 74. So my grandfather had a, a 72. My uncle had a 72. Um, so they're just gorgeous trucks. So, uh, you know, 72 Chevy, hands down, beats the cyber truck. Um, I don't care if it gets four miles to the gallon, you know, <laughs> and maybe not as, as much acceleration. But it's it's probably much more fun to drive than the Cybertruck. I don't know. You can you could probably smoke a smoke a Ferrari or a Lamborghini in a in a quarter mile in this thing. So I I, I don't know if I'd agree if it'd be more fun to drive. That thing can fly. I, and I have no doubt about that. But just cruising around, yeah, at, you know, at, at thirty miles an hour through town with a seventy two Chevy, I'd rather do that than smoke a Ferrari. What is a what is a used seventy two Chevy go for? You know, I don't know. I think my dad's trying to buy. I think he's actually trying to buy a '68. Um, but he's been looking at '72s. I they're, they're certainly a classic car now. But I would say, and this is really off the cuff because I don't know. But I'd say upwards over thirty thousand, probably somewhere between thirty. Wow, Jesus, yeah, a classic '70s car. I mean, the Cybertruck well, is classic. forty thousand, thirty nine, yeah, well, thirty nine five hundred with a hundred dollar deposit. Argument. You can, buy, so argument you can literally house. buy a Cybertruck. I, I know. Or, argument closed. Or a '72 Chevy. Oh my True. goodness. That's True. amazing. All right, guys. Well, once again, always, as always, thank you so much for turning into tuning into great quarter guys. We are available on Apple, Spotify and Freightcast networks, and we will see you guys back next week. And next week we are going to do, sorry to butt in, but we're going to do what craft Heinz. That's or right. We're going to, yeah. we're going to pick apart craft Heinz. Yeah, we'll do that. And I'll bring in some of my consumer experience and we'll yeah. talk about things from the shipping side, which we haven't hit yet. Yeah. But we're going to analyze their, their supply chain and, um, it'll be really good for information to anyone who wants to pick up the phone and call with that persistence to nasty and hustle, call craft Heinz and, and, and get in on a bid. I think we're also going to be on, uh, on video next week. That's we're, right. We're, we're going to be a lot. So yeah, there's some changes coming to great quarter guys and they're going to all be positive. We're going to be live. We're going to be on TV, and we're going to be doing it next week with you on Kraft Heinz. So once again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Bye.